Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Chasing the Moon on PBS. Tune in or stream Monday, July 8th at 9, 8 central, only on PBS. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hey, it's Ross Helderman from The Post calling. How are you? Hey there, it's Sungman from The Post. Uh, hey, it's Dave Farron from The Post. Let me get a second. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, June 27th. Today, two significant decisions from the Supreme Court. How presidential candidates target voters on Facebook and the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots. Just count! 2020! Just count! Today, crowds of protesters and demonstrators gathered outside the Supreme Court awaiting two big decisions. The two court cases that everyone was waiting for were about partisan gerrymandering and about a citizenship question on the census. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I know this is a crazy day for you. I've never been so confused by a decision. <laughs> really? We all... I thought it was just me. We were all staring at it like, what does this mean? <laughs> uh, and reading it over and over. Hi, everyone. Thank you for holding in this sweltering heat over here. It's been a nail-biter. Uh, we got a kind of a decision. My name is Robert Barnes, and I cover the Supreme Court for The Washington Post. These two Supreme Court cases were something that a lot of people were really invested in, were were watching leading up to today. Why are these two cases in particular so significant? Well, they have so much to do with political power in the country, about representation, about whose voice is going to be heard. Uh, You know, the census is used to dole out billions and billions of dollars from the federal government. It decides how many representatives each state has and thus how many votes in the Electoral College. I mean, it is hugely important as as sort of setting the bottom line for uh, representation in our democracy. So let's start with the census case. What happened with the Supreme Court decision there? It was a very uh, confusing decision, I have to say, unlike those that are usually written by the Chief Justice John Roberts, who is very clear. But, you know, it also is sort of representative of the sort of tangled road and, and crooked road that we've taken to get to this point. It involves whether or not there is a citizenship question that would be placed on the census forms that go to every household. Now, the government has asked a citizenship question in almost every census, but only on the sort of small portion of those that get what used to be called the longer census form or a more detailed one. The short one that goes to everyone else, this question hasn't been asked uh, since 1950. And the reason it hasn't is because even officials in the Census Bureau say that it could lead to an undercount. The Constitution calls for a count of all the people in the country. It doesn't say all the citizens 
in the country. It says all the people in the country. And there's a concern that people who are worried about their immigration status or the immigration status of people in their household or, or their family, they might not answer the census because they're worried about telling the government the answer to that question about citizenship. That's right. The The information is supposed to be confidential, but there is a concern uh, that they would be sort of alerting the government to the fact that there is someone uh, in the household that's not supposed to be in the country. And the census officials say that it could lead to an undercount of almost 9 million people uh, because they would be f- afraid to give out that information. So President Trump has been fighting to get the citizenship question onto the census. And what did the Supreme Court say about whether or not they're going to allow him to do that? Well, uh, this was a decision by the Commerce Secretary, Wilbur Ross. And he has a lot of power to do things, but he also has to give a reason for it, too. The reason he gave in this case was he said that the Department of Justice wanted the information because it would be useful in enforcing the Voting Rights Act. Um, that didn't make sense to a lot of people. It's never the Department of Justice has never asked for this information before. Um And so uh, groups, democratic states, civil rights groups, uh, immigrant rights groups uh, sued. Uh, They got a lot of information and they found out that it was actually Ross's idea to put the question on the census. He then went to the DOJ sort of looking for a reason for it. Uh, All the courts that have looked at this and all these lawsuits that have come said that uh, what Ross did was just pretext for doing what he wanted to do in the first place. And they said that that violates administrative law procedures, that, you know, you have to have sort of a real reason for doing something. And in the end, uh, that's what the Supreme Court said today, at least five members of them. Four of the the most conservative members of the court said, doesn't really matter what his reason was. Uh, He has the right to run the census and put questions on it, and it's none of our business. Roberts uh, and the four liberals said, well, that's not quite true, that we have to, as judges, look for a reason, and it has to be a real reason, and it can't be a contrived reason. So the bottom line was that they said the question can't be asked for now, But it's possible that the administration could come back and say, you know, here's a different reason that we want it, and that might be one that courts accept. So this isn't a clear loss for Trump or a clear win for the advocates who are trying to keep this question off the census. That's right. I mean, the the one other weird uh, sort of thing that gets in the way here is that it has to be done very quickly. You know, the, the census has to be done in 2020. The administration had been saying that they needed an answer to this question by the end of June in order to get forms printed and people trained uh, to conduct the census. Um, I don't know if they will continue to say that. Uh, The president just tweeted that he thought the census should be delayed which I'm not exactly sure how that would happen. I feel like it's pretty clear that it's supposed to happen in 2020. Um, But, you know, printing of the form could be delayed or, you know, there could be an effort. And I would be very surprised if the administration and the department didn't try to come up with another 
reason for why this information is needed. You know, the interesting thing about this is it all seems to be up to John Roberts right now and whether or not they come up with a reason that he finds acceptable and if there's still time to put this the question on the census. So that was the case about the citizenship question. What about the gerrymandering case? The gerrymandering case was about whether extreme partisan gerrymandering is something that federal courts can look at and make decisions about. Uh, For years, the Supreme Court has said that it could be a violation of someone's, a voter's constitutional rights if uh, they were put in a gerrymandered district and that their vote wouldn't count as much as someone else's. But they've never been able to come up with a standard for how you would judge that, what judges would look for to make sure of that. So the Supreme Court has never issued a definitive ruling on that. Well, today they did. And they said federal courts do not have a role in this. This is between voters and the representatives that they elect and that it is not up to federal judges to make any decisions that might shift the balance of power between the political parties. So even in cases where there are states where people believe that either Republicans or Democrats are dramatically overrepresented in in their state government because of gerrymandering, that it's not the federal government's job to step in and say, no, you have to redraw the lines. Yes. I mean, it's a very bipartisan effort here. And what they were looking at was a map from North Carolina that had been gerrymandered by Republicans to make uh, it easier for them to get elected to Congress, uh, and a map from Maryland that was gerrymandered by Democrats to reduce one of the Republic, longtime Republican congressmen uh, in the state. So both sides do it. It helps Republicans right now because they're in control of the governorship and the legislature in more states than Democrats are. But the question is, you know, do judges have a role in this? The decision was five to four, Roberts and the court's conservatives saying, we're out of this. Federal courts should be out of this. Um, State courts can still do uh, some of it if it uh, is in their state constitution. But federal courts, you should pull out of this. Um, It prompted a very emotional uh, dissent from the liberal justices. It was read by Justice Elena Kagan. She said that the uh, courts were abdicating their responsibility to rectify a constitutional violation. She said the courts have never thrown up its hands before to say there's just nothing we can do about this. Uh, and she went on for a very long time uh, reading her dissent from the bench, which is a fairly rare thing that justices do when they want to make clear how much they object. It even seemed to some of us like her voice was breaking uh, at times. Uh, And she ended, uh, the justices often end a dissent by saying they respectfully dissent. Uh, She said that she was dissenting with respect, but also deep sadness for what the court was doing. Hmm. What do you think that these two decisions together say about the state of the Supreme Court today? Well, I think one thing it shows is the central role that John Roberts plays in it. Uh, He's the only one that was really in the majority in both of these 
cases. You know, in one, he was with the conservative members of the court, and the other, he was with the liberal members of the court. And I think it's just what all of us thought was going to happen when Justice Anthony Kennedy retired last year. Uh, it uh, it meant that Kennedy, who for so many years had been the sort of central uh, of the court, sometimes with conservatives, most times with conservatives, sometimes with liberals, with him gone, the court shifts and Roberts plays that role. And what that means, I think, in the future is that the court moves to the right. Roberts is far more conservative than Kennedy was. Brett Kavanaugh, who was the person who took Kennedy's position. He's more conservative than Kennedy. And we also got a very clear view today of the role that Kavanaugh plays. As I say, for years, the court has been looking at this, not coming up with the test for what would be too much partisan gerrymandering, but never quite settling it because Anthony Kennedy wasn't quite ready to give up on the idea that that test was available out there somewhere. Now, in his first term on the court, within months of being sworn in, Kavanaugh has said, it's done. We're not going to do this. But at the same time, you know, President Trump has put in two Supreme Court justices now and and done a lot to move the court to be more conservative. But then you see in the census case that even with that, President Trump is still somewhat losing some of these cases. Well, and I think that this partly shows a problem that the Trump administration has had in the lower courts, it, you know, affects them a little bit in the Supreme Court as well, which is that a lot of their decisions have been struck down by lower courts because the lower court said you just didn't do the work. You didn't show why this needed to be done. You didn't follow all the procedures of the law. And in effect, that's what Roberts is saying in this case, too. You have to give us a real reason. You can't sort of make up one or convince us that you did give us the real reason when it's clear that you didn't. And again, you know, this I don't think is over. And so it may be yet that the administration does come up with a reason that satisfies the chief justice. The question will be whether it's in time uh, for the census. Robert, thank you so much. My pleasure. Robert Barnes covers the Supreme Court for The Post. So tell me about this data that you've been compiling and examining. So I've been digging into Facebook advertising data. I'm Michelle Lee, and I cover money and politics for The Washington Post. It's actually publicly available data. It's how much campaigns are spending to place ads on Facebook and what their ads say. And it's very sophisticated. And the way that these campaigns are running ads on Facebook tells you a lot about how they're campaigning and where they're headed in this election season, what they're focusing on, and what they're kind of worried about. So when it comes to the Democrat side, what kinds of advertising have you been seeing from them on Facebook and what are they trying to do? I know I've asked you for so much and you've answered the call every time. So what they're really trying to do is two things on Facebook. One is to raise money. I hate to ask again, but I'm hoping you'll contribute $15 to help power my campaign. Please donate today. Every little bit helps. Please do join the Yang Gang. Just give 5 bucks, 10 bucks, 20 bucks, whatever you can afford. 
And two is teaching voters who they are. So a lot of their messages on Facebook are, hi, I'm running for president. Please donate a dollar. Please donate $5 to my campaign. Or, hi, I'm running to become your president. My name is Seth Moulton. <laughs> or, my name is Jay Inslee, and I care about climate change. And likely you've probably never heard of me you before. You may not know me, but I'm running to be your president. So you're seeing those two things really dominate their advertising on Facebook. Hi, I'm Congressman Seth Moulton. I'm a veteran running for president of the United States. Campaigns need 65,000 donors to make it to the Democratic debate stage. So please chip in now. And as a part of this, you're seeing them spend a lot of money on trying to make it to the debate stage. Because for the first time, the Democratic National Committee is requiring that you meet a certain number of donors to your campaign in order to qualify for the debates. And those debates are happening this week. And we came up with this thing called the Delaney Debate Challenge, which basically is a challenge to you to give me a dollar towards my campaign. And if you give me a dollar, for every one dollar you give me, I am personally going to donate $2 to a number of charities, and you get to pick. I saw in the data that about a fourth of their spending in recent months have gone toward mentioning the debate. And that includes, please help me make it onto the debate stage, give me a dollar. Yeah, I've been really shocked by how explicit some of these advertisements have been, where it literally says... If you want to see this candidate on the debate stage, not if you want to see this candidate as president, but if you just want to see them on the debate stage, please, please, please donate $5. And you also see them say, hey, you may not know me, but if you want to get to know me, please put me on the debate stage. I'll tell you who I am. Or you may have donated to another candidate. That's okay. Please donate to me, too. So who has been spending the most money on Facebook ads on the Dem side? Some of the top spenders on the Democratic side on Facebook advertising are Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and Amy Klobuchar. And what you see these candidates doing on Facebook is trying to find their lane and trying to dominate an issue area that they care about that coincides with their campaign. So, for example, for Elizabeth Warren... She's a big spender on a lot of policy issues because that's kind of her jam. She says she has a plan for that. And so she has Facebook ads that talk about her policy on big tech, on childcare, and on housing. Those are some of her biggest issues on Facebook. And then for Bernie Sanders, he's a big spender on minimum wage because that's a really big part of his campaign. So you see their Facebook advertising, perhaps not surprisingly, but you see it coincide with their biggest messages on the campaign trail. Well, I think that is interesting and and surprising in some ways that that some of these ads are less personality driven. And it seems like a lot of TV ads are very personality driven, but that when it comes to Facebook, focusing on a particular issue and making that ad and that sell about an issue that somebody cares about, that micro-targeting might be more effective for them. Right. If you think about the way you view a TV ad and the way you act on Facebook, the behavior of the audience is so different. Your attention span for this ad is very short. It may be just a couple seconds, if that, if you can spare that. So they don't have 30 seconds to lay it over with fancy music and really, you know, good looking backgrounds and show you their family and their dog. There's no time for that. You see this a lot with campaigns who are trying to introduce themselves. They have a hard time trying to message both about them as a person and them on their policy issues. The only person who's doing this really well is Jay Inslee because his big topic is climate change. So he's able to say, I'm Jay Inslee. I care about climate change. But when it comes to other candidates, it's hard to say, like, 
I'm Kirsten Gillibrand. Please help me get on the debate stage. Also, here's my policy plan on family leave. And also, here's what else I care about. <laughs> it's really hard to do that. That's so. not a message that you can get to in, <laughs> no. in the half of a second that someone's going to Yeah, as you're scrolling with ad. your thumb. Interestingly, among the Democratic candidates, Joe Biden is the only one who's not trying to carve out a specific policy area on Facebook. And that's because he can just tell you he's Joe Biden. People know who he is. He's vice president. And that's interesting how that, that you can see the types of Facebook ads reflecting what his strategy is for the larger campaign, that he doesn't need to be the guy running on issues. He's just he's the personality that we all know and that people will vote for him because of his personality. Right. I noticed this because I saw that the biggest ad spending for his campaign is on other. That was a category of his ad issues. And I was like, what is other? And other just meant that he's not talking about any specific policy enough to really categorize what his ads are about. So that told me, okay, so he's running ads about him and just being Joe Biden, like the essence of Joe. And that's what his ads are about. Hi, it's Joe. Because of you, we got in the campaign off to a great start, but we can't let up now. So please chip into the campaign today. Where do you find this information from about what campaigns are spending their money on on Facebook? So Facebook has been self-reporting their advertising data as a response to some of the criticisms in 2016 when people wanted to know more about how Facebook operates. You're able to see how much money people are spending and what the ads say and who's running the ads and what disclaimers they have. And then other third-party firms have been analyzing this data as well. So we at The Washington Post use publicly available data to analyze it. And I've also been leaning on Bully Pulpit Interactive, which is a digital consulting firm that takes the publicly available data and then figures out what topics people are talking about. So at the same time that Democrats are trying to basically find their lane on Facebook, find their audience, and and also use Facebook to get enough money to be able to make the debate stage President Trump has also been using Facebook, but in a pretty different way. He's spending tons of money running Facebook ads, and that in turn helps him raise more money because he's able to ask people for donations, tell you on Facebook why he's doing such a great job as president, why he deserves to be reelected, and also he's trying to get to know you as a follower. The top three issues for his Facebook ads right now are immigration, The wall is under construction. Which is a banner issue for his campaign. Another top issue that President Trump advertises on is fake news. And the other is about himself. So he talks a lot about how great he is and how great of a job he's doing. So it's kind of like a morale booster on Facebook for his supporters. President Trump is doing a great job. I could not ask for a better president of the United States of America. In some ways, it seems like for President Trump, Facebook advertising is much more low stakes because people already know who he is, already know what he's about, and that he is a little bit more flexible to be able to be experimental on Facebook or figure out new ways to use Facebook to be effective in 2020. Exactly. He can do so much more on Facebook right now than any of the Democrats can. And that's kind of a natural advantage of being an incumbent, right? You are already president. But when it comes to President Trump's Facebook spending, you can just see just how much money he is spending from his campaign. For example, his birthday was on June 14th, and he spent hundreds of thousands of dollars asking people to sign a birthday card for him. (laughs) What? 
This isn't just a random birthday card that's going to get sent to the White House. I mean, maybe it is. But the purpose for that is for people to click on the ad, sign up. The campaign then has your email address, and then they're able to know what type of people are responding to something like a birthday card for the president. And that tells you either you're a supporter that they already know and you are continuing to be his supporter and that you're a reliable voter for him probably for re-election, or you are a new supporter to the campaign who saw this ad, took the time to click on it, give you their email address. That's them recruiting new people into their email list. So even something that looks as innocuous as a birthday card on Facebook has a really strategic purpose behind it. Recently, I've been seeing in Facebook data for President Trump that he is targeting his messages so granularly that he mentions towns with just a couple thousand people in them. And that's how well he knows his voters and how well to target voters on Facebook. So let's say your town is Town of Martine and her friends. <laughs> he says, hey, Town of Martine and her friends, I'm coming there for a rally. Or hey, Town of Martine and her friends, give me a couple bucks. I know you like me. And it feels like the president is talking to you. <laughs> exactly. It feels so personalized because it is. And are Democrats worried about this, the fact that President Trump is able to find all these new ways of using Facebook while all the Democratic candidates are focused on the very short-term goals? Yes, this is a big worry when it comes to Democratic digital strategists, because you can just see in the numbers behind the spending on both sides and the types of audiences they're targeting. President Trump is clearly working on a general election campaign. He's working on a general election message and targeting audiences based on the states that he needs to win the presidency. Democrats are targeting people in order to try to just break out of the field and win the early states in the primaries. And it's not for the general election. And that's a huge worry to Democratic strategists. Do you expect that some of these ads going forward will highlight moments from the debate or pick some of those viral moments and, and try to get them out to folks who may not have been watching the debate? Yes. The debates this week are just going to be a wild chase for those viral moments. And that's what's so hard right now for these Democratic candidates. They have not had those opportunities to really break out and go viral and get that money and attention. And the debates are going to be a prime opportunity for them to say that thing that's going to go viral. They just don't know what it is yet. But once they find it, these campaigns are going to go wild with it and try to put it all over Facebook and raise money off of it because that's just what they've been waiting for. Michelle, thank you so much. Thank you. Michelle Lee covers money and politics for The Post. We'll have full coverage of both Democratic debates on Friday's episode of Post Reports. The Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Chasing the Moon on PBS, the epic story of the moon landing. This is the most audacious undertaking of man has ever attempted. It's as if you were there when it happened. I understood what it meant to smell fear. Experience the making of history. The computer was overloading. It was touch and go. Like you never have before. Everybody felt they had a piece of it, and they did. Chasing the Moon on American Experience. Premieres Monday, July 8th at 9, 8 central, only on PBS. And now, one more thing from reporter Gillian Brockell, remembering a pair of civil rights champions on the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots. 
Marsha P. Johnson was really known in New York as, you know, a sort of local celebrity, a character. She was homeless for most of her life, but she just had this warm, inviting, generous personality. She was gregarious. You can lock yourself in a closet in a farming stall, but it really doesn't matter if you ain't got stall. In some ways, she was sort of an ideal spokeswoman for transgender people if she was the first transgender person you were ever going to meet because she was just so nice. And people talk about her as being, you know, St. Marcia, being very generous. If you said, oh, I like your bracelet, Marcia, she'd take it off her wrist and give it to you. But she was also underneath that kindness, there was very serious activism there. And so she was always at the protest, whatever protest was happening. She was always trying to help other transgender people, particularly ones that were younger than her, like Sylvia Rivera. And in a lot of ways, where Marcia was very generous and lighthearted, Sylvia was almost the exact opposite. She was serious. She was angry. We have to stand up and speak for ourselves. We have to fight for ourselves. She demanded her rights. She demanded to be treated well. She demanded to be a part of the gay rights movement when some people would have wanted to push her out. And she said, if it wasn't for the drag queen, there would be no gay liberation movement. We're the frontliners. One of the things that Marsha and Sylvia both said they were proudest of was starting this group. It was called the Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries. That was the best word they had for themselves at the time. And they started something called Star House. I came down to be nosy and I moved in and took over basically as the big mother that I am. It was a house where they gave shelter and love and support to a lot of the gay, lesbian and transgender kids that were living on the street. You know, there are some people who say Marsha P. Johnson was the Rosa Parks of the transgender movement. Other people say Sylvia Rivera was the Rosa Parks of the transgender movement. You know, but together, they were the first people who really demanded with political intent that they be treated well as they were and that they didn't have to change in order to be regarded as having value and worth. So far, we've announced five new monuments honoring trailblazing women, one in each borough. Recently, New York City's First Lady, Shirlene McRae, made an announcement about how the two will be honored. So the New York City government has announced that they are going to make a statue honoring Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson. It coincides with the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots, which were on June 28th, 1969. And both of the women are believed to have been there and participated. Today, as we prepare to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising and the movement it sparked, we will add two new names to the list. Once it's created, this will be the first permanent public artwork honoring transgender women in the world. We see you. We honor you. We love you. Gillian Brockell is a writer for Retropolis, the Post's history section. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. 
If you want to know how to support the work that we do here, please consider subscribing to The Washington Post. We're offering listeners a special discount on a digital subscription. Get unlimited access to our website and apps for less than a dollar a week. Sign up at postreports.com slash offer. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.